Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai haere mai ki te Indigenous Urbanism, Aotearoa edition, episode 7. I'm your host Jay Kake and this is Indigenous Urbanism, stories about the spaces we inhabit and the community drivers and practitioners who are shaping those environments and decolonizing through design. On this episode of Indigenous Urbanism, we speak with Elisabeth Zaheta no Ngāti Wai, an architectural graduate working at Jazzmax. Alyssa Peter is also an artist and academic and has held significant advocacy roles, including her previous role as co-chair of Architectural Women and current role as the Ngā'aho representative to the New Zealand Institute of Architects board. We caught up with Alyssa Peter at the Jazzmax offices in Parnell. Ko koe, no koe. where are you from and, and who are you? I am from many places actually. My father's side, I'm from up north and a little bit south of here, so uh, no Ngāti Waiahau, um, me Waikato Tainui. And on my mother's side, I am Samoan, Tokelaun, and English, so she's first generation New Zealander, whatever that means. Her mother was born in Apia, and her father was born in Portsmouth in England, so from everywhere. Ko Elisabetta, hene moheta, ahau. I'm an architectural graduate at Jazzmax, but I'm also um, part of a rōpū here uh, called Wakamaya. We are sort of three architectural graduates who run a lot of the, for want of better words, Māori navigation type stuff for projects. So we have boldly given ourselves the title of Kaihotu uh, Whaihanga to Māori design leaders within the practice. And so you find yourself in a really large firm, but being one of a few Māori practitioners. So could you talk a little bit just about that experience? Mm. Yeah, for me, for starters, it's quite funny as a graduate, I think you sort of are assuming you're going out into the world begging somebody to take you on as some kind of strange liability to them or something. But I was very deliberate about choosing to want to come and work with Jazzmax. And that was partly because Jazzmax had a known reputation for working uh, on community projects that involved Māori that I was really intrigued by. A lot of that was led and run by Ivan Mersip, who's since passed away. But he had quite the legacy, effectively, with Māori communities, with Māori projects, even though he wasn't Māori himself, and had mentored um, Brendan Hemona and sort of a little bit at the end there um, as well, Rameka Tuinukuafe, who are both my colleagues in Wakamaya. Jazzmax, I think, sort of had a cultural capacity, shall we say. It had, a, it had an understanding, it had a bit of a when I sort of found out the history of why Jazz Mad began, a little bit of a, um, a radical sort of beginnings and, and wanting to make the city a better place. And I suppose that's considered radical sometimes. Um, shockingly. Shockingly, yeah. Protesting against motorways being built in ridiculous places and, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. So I think Jazz Max just had, there was an inbuilt sort of sense for me from the outside looking in that it was something... I could get in on. It's hard, I think, to build cultural capacity from scratch, knowing that there were Māori colleagues already here that were trying to make things happen. That was sort of a nice transition, I suppose. It had some momentum, it had some legs. Um, and I came on at a time um, that um, Hayley Hooper, another um, Māori wahine, had also joined Jazzmax only six months prior to me starting here. So there ended up being four of us, which was a little bit of a bubble. And we, I think in sort of a 
a momentum kind of riding the wave of a whole lot of things happening outside of the office. Um, so the first time, you know, Māori had ever met officially with the NZIA had happened at the same time and there were talks about the kawenata which eventually comes into being later on I suppose in the chronology of my life. So being here or coming here to Jazzmax was kind of wanting to push myself and what I thought was really important with the kind of powerhouse that this already had. I suppose. Nothing's perfect, you know, every every body, every group, every collective, every office has things they can do better. I think that's what's been pretty amazing personally from my point of view is the willingness of this office to actually let us roam a little bit far and then come back and sort of genuinely start to initiate and embed a lot of the things that we thought were important from a Tao Māori point of view into um, business as, as usual at this practice, which is pretty amazing, steering a ship of, you know, last year it was over 300 people. So it, you'd think change like that would take a long time, but it, it's been surprisingly flexible and adaptable. I liked what you said a bit earlier when you mentioned, um, you know, Ivan and the kind of relationships that he had with Māori communities and they were very deep, enduring relationships. And what I was really encouraged by is when you also talked about how he was bringing young Māori practitioners through in this process. Because mm -hmm. that's something I see a lot is that sometimes quite experienced Pākehā architects feel that they should occupy that space as a matter of right. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to, I often want to challenge them on that, saying, well, you don't occupy that space as a matter of right, and what are you doing to bring Māori practitioners into this space? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, we're seeing now that now really bubble up as a conversation around um, cultural appropriation, right? It's the question of what right do Pākehā have to occupy our spaces, our knowledge, our represent things that represent us mm -hmm. and for me my qu I always start with questions was what is it that they are giving back how is it that they are supporting Māori Māori communities the knowledge where that has come from what permissions have they sought out where does the mana lie and I don't like to talk about mana often because I find it's used as a means of currency where it should not but I do genuinely mean where, who is being uplifted truly? Who is being empowered by what you were doing? That question actually applies to anybody, Pākehā, Māori, Tauiwi alike. I think there's a lot to be said for Pākehā who have occupied and do occupy those spaces and do it in such a way that they are breaking down barriers and enabling those other people to step into those spaces. And I can think of a lot of people off the top of my head who have been huge, hugely instrumental for me in, I suppose, breaking through a barrier, demonstrating that it was possible, and then kind of pushing me through it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess what I mean by that is somebody like Ivan would be a really great example. You know, the kind of semi-invisible Maoritz Kelderman at, at Design Tribe is another really good example of that. And he will never... He will never talk about himself in such a way that he is occupying that knowledge for himself. He is very much present for the kaupapa 
and he will give you whatever knowledge he has. And I have always found that very humbling and quite inspiring and I'm actually getting teary about it. Um, and if he ever listens to this, he'll laugh at me, but that's okay. Um, and it's, it's people like that who are really, really important. I saw a huge discussion about cultural appropriation breakdown on Facebook. It was fascinating, actually, um, on Tracy Tafiel's um, Facebook page. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was like, but like something like 600 comments deep. And there was this one comment from Aroha um, Gossard about her dad's, you know, Mahi Peter Gossard. All of the beautiful drawings that he did that brought us as children, like the whole country, uh, you know, the Maui stories, and he was a Pakia man. And I think about that, I thought about that actually, her, her sort of challenge to that space of cultural appropriation, and she said, my, you know, my dad has spoken, he, he did this, and, and everybody's kind of jumping in and going, oh my God, you, that wasn't cultural appropriation, and, you know, we're really appreciative, and we are really appreciative. And I think in those times as well, that, that was Pakia stepping into spaces that, that the mainstream probably weren't super stoked about. Um, but it's breaking, it's breaking down barriers and enabling other things to happen. And whether or not that was exactly what they were thinking about at the time, I don't know, I can't speak to that. But, you know, I, I guess all I'm saying is, for me, it's those critical questions around where the kaupapa sits, what your true intentions are, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, what those good intentions actually form in terms of intangible outcomes and actions, and then just constantly being rigorous and critical about how you check yourself in that. That would be what I would ask of, of anybody operating in that space, but definitely of, I think, our um, Pākehā practitioners who sometimes mean well but maybe don't hit the mark, I suppose. And I still don't think about that in a, in a kind of like, I'm, I'm not giving anybody a lecture or telling anyone off about it. I just think we all have the opportunity to grow. So I would hope this is people's opportunity to grow. Yeah, and I think what you've described is actually just like the conditions for a really solid treaty-based relationship. Exactly. Based on respect. Please, <laughs> please. I really, um, gosh, if I had one kind of if I had one sort of wish, it would be that people stopped seeing the treaty as a negative, as associated with negative connotations. And I, I feel like what I mean by that is that it was, it should have been, and it was to my mind predicated on the idea that we had two peoples coming together <laughs> and working together and negotiating what that meant. That's why it was so amazing that we as an Indigenous people would have an actual treaty that would be honoured. Yeah, and setting, setting the foundations and articulating an ongoing relationship. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I actually do ask myself and I have asked my colleagues and I try to ask the practice and certain people are able to engage in the conversation, certain people aren't. But I do think it's an important question to ask ourselves is what is our, what are we doing to honour the treaty? ourselves, yourself personally, every single day. And I, I have answers for myself and they will change and evolve over time. My biggest honour to the treaty and that relationship is learning te reo. 
and making sure that everybody around me feels more and more comfortable and learning it too. My, my uncle who's in his um, 60s, he's on, he's on this real buzz of reclaiming being a Māori. I mean, he's always been there in the community, but I think because he grew up, as our parents did, in the time where, you know. So he's, he's taking te reo classes and he's, he's starting um, night classes. Like yeah. He's the chair of our landing corporation and he's leading all this amazing stuff and he's like, oh, I need to... Oh, I need to step up and like, yeah, yeah. and I just think that's beautiful seeing, um, especially, I mean, it's awesome for us, but especially for our parents' generation to be able to reclaim that. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I really feel that one. Growing up with my dad for as long as I did, up until I was about 13, he used to um, describe himself as a plastic Māori, and that used to break my heart. And particularly as a child, even when I was really, really young, I didn't necessarily understand it, but I knew that it felt funny. Dad kind of wore it as this unusual badge of honour and shame. He kind of said, he used to say it to get out of doing a mihi on the marae. Because <laughs> he had two rules for going to a tangi. One was show up late so you didn't have to do a mihi. And the other was sleep in between the two biggest aunties so you got real warm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually not bad advice, I have to say. But um, that claim of being a plastic Māori used to just hurt me. And I, I don't mean in a, you know, he wasn't doing it on purpose, but it was it was something that I understood as I got, as I got older. And then at his tangi, and you sort of realise like, he's got sort of one brother of 16 that can actually speak to him. And people's ability to engage in the language was very limited. Our queer's ability to engage in the waiata beyond ehara, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> apparently that was the anthem of the day. You know, even things like karanga, all that sort of stuff. And it's not an uncommon story and that's the sad thing, you know. We're big on the church, so Fakari Mai is our... Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah, we always sung Fakari Mai a few too many 30 times <laughs> but yeah it's going back into those spaces and seeing our our yeah parents generation is pretty important it's pretty powerful the real class that i um, am in um there's a couple of older guys and oh man they crack up you know you call them papa blah blah and koro blah blah and, it, and the deeper their deal gets the more you joke about them being komatua and they're like oh i'm getting older by the week <laughs> but it is amazing you know and you can see their struggle with realizing the years that it's taken them to get there but i just think there's power in learning regardless of your age yeah it's 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 amazing it, it does really illustrate the mamai we have to get through it's kind of it's undeniable but at the same time i just yeah it's quite uplifting as well <laughs> sometimes i get quite impatient because there's so much that i need to get done while i'm alive yeah, sometimes, Jade, that would be all the time, but we won't do your therapy session today. <laughs> so what I was going on to was, you know, because I do feel like, you know, I need to get registered and get the language back and get the land back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just all those things. Save the country. Yeah. Somehow tell Don Brash to shush to his face. Little goals. 
what I did want to talk about next, um, moving on from that discussion around the treaty relationship, mm -hmm. is that as Ngāho we formed an agreement with the NZIA, the Kawanata, yep. and I haven't really asked anybody to talk about it on the podcast yet, but mm -hmm. I thought who better than you who's been there all the way through it and who is now our rep on the NZIA board. Yeah. So could you talk a bit about that? Ngāho and the New Zealand Institute of Architects have in recent years developed a Kawanata or Covenant Agreement. The Kawanata, which was signed by both parties in early 2017, sets out a set of principles for a treaty-based relationship between the two organisations. Alyssa Petzer was recently interviewed about this kaupapa over on the 76 Small Rooms podcast, so do check that out. Getting to spend um, so much time with Matua Hari, Hari Williams, who I actually just adore. I adore the man. With Ra myself and Ramika, particularly one night we drove out to his house. We went and got Chinese food, he's never forgotten that. Mm -hmm. Very proud. And we just sat with him, you know, and we talked it through, and we talked it through, and we talked it through. And he's such an orator, and he's of such the old way that we had to, every, like, literally, if there was a grammar change, there was a comma put in, or one, like, hair was put in, we had to say the whole sentence out loud again. It was amazing, but what it did is it really taught me about where he was coming from and what he was trying to instill from his point of view within the language of the kawinata. For me, that was, that was really about establishing, again, a treaty-based relationship between two organisations who have otherwise not had a formal relationship set up. And that formal relationship wasn't about the two organisations, but it was about what those organisations and who those organisations represent. And the massive, honestly, power that all of those members of those two organisations have to effectively change the entire face of New Zealand, if we think about that. Because architects and everybody working in the built environment, our, our landscape architects, our planners, our urban designers, everybody, we are making significant change all the time. Even if it's just to an alteration on a street, it's changing the street fabric. So the kawenata from a very high governance level was saying this is a relationship between two peoples, two organisations, that's what I mean by that. That relationship is going to be based on all the good stuff, respect and we're going to honour mātauranga Māori, we're going to honour mana whenua, we're going to think about sustainability. And from that, our memberships, both Ngā Aho and the NZIA, have such a solid foundation from which to interrogate ourselves in a, in a positive way, you know, be self-aware, think about our practice. So all that stuff I was talking about before in terms of, like, the, the fundamental questions you're asking yourself about what space do you occupy, what are you leaving behind? Who are you pulling up? Who are you empowering? Communities, staff, whatever. You can actually refer back to the kawenata. We can all refer back to the kawenata and go, oh, it's telling me here this is how I could do that. It's telling me here this is how I can establish a relationship. And it can be so simple. It can just be with the artist that you want to employ to do some kick-ass tukutuku panels on the side of a I don't know what. And if you want some way of thinking about it, there's lots and lots of methods to think about it, but the kawinata is one. And it just talks about the type of respect, respectful relationship you're going to have with that other group. We're in there a few years in. Yeah. 
Um, what are some of the ways that this relationship has started to come to light since then? The, the visible one is my role in the NZIA. It's not my role as and I'm not holding it for forever because, oh my gosh, it needs to go somebody else, please. But it is a role, it's a co-opted role onto the NZIA Council for a representative of Ngāaho to sit and effectively diversify that conversation at that table to give the Tao Māori point of view, to give the Ngāaho um, point of view to speak as kaitiaki of Aotearoa effectively. Not a big job at all. <laughs> no, no, it's enormous. Um, and it's one I feel every time I'm at that table. And you know, I don't get it right. What I do do to the best of my ability is listen really hard everywhere I am. I realise how important the power of observation is. Less than the power of questioning, uh, like the, the power of questioning is less important than the power of observation because you've just really got to be attentive. So I listen to what everybody's talking about. I listen, I kind of keep my ear to the ground around changes, you know, happening in our councils and in our, our industry and all those kinds of things. But I also listen to what iwi are talking about and the things that are affecting them and that they're troubled by or concerned by. And right from the big treaty negotiation stuff all the way down to the way that architects may or may not be engaging them on projects. And I can bring all of that to the table and anybody that ends up at that table has that opportunity. So that's a really super tangible outcome is effectively be a voice at that table brings that perspective that is mandated to be there to bring that perspective. And that mandate thing's pretty tricky. Yeah, it can be. It's a, it's a big deal that we've gone through that process and we have yeah. a solid mandate process in place. It is, it is. I think it's really critical, you know, and I think... I, I've never under, underestimated or undervalued the power of the voice. I think our voice at that table is a big one. And it's one, you can see, I think, in the changing tides that people are getting more and more kind of they're anticipating Māori to kind of come forward and be like, and, and give, give our opinion. And people really hunger for it, and that's really exciting. So there's one tangible outcome. Um, I mean, there's... <sighs> There's lots of others. The NZIA in their own um, little way are learning and understanding how to incorporate some parts of tikanga into their lives. There's everything from there's an expectation of me to do karakia, to open and close our hui. So they're getting used to hearing the language. To the past president and the current president having genuinely wanting to be able to understand real more so that every time they get up to speak they can say something other than maybe just you know kia ora. and and it's a genuine want it's everything from opening things you know in situ uh, last year with a full-on porphyry um, and that was amazing it was all these AUT students came we had our international guests come up Dame Patsy Red Patsy Reddy the yeah. Yeah. The uh, Governor General was there, wasn't going to speak um, at the Pōwhiri, which was case pie, you know, we were just like, everybody's got up and we're doing our thing. But Matua Hari gave such a rousing whaikōrero that she decided to stand up and speak off the cuff, um, which I don't, I realised at the time was, isn't normal, you know, and that, I think for the first time for a lot of um, NZIA members, I got a lot of comments from people saying, 
oh, that was just so powerful is a word people always use to describe bohiri, you know, it's so powerful. And, you know, it meant that relationships we're forming with our international guests were formed on something that is uniquely New Zealand. We have a potency here with our ability to do that stuff and do it genuinely. And as a result, they never they never forget their time here. It always becomes much more special than just another conference. And the NZIA being able to engage in that, but engage in it meaningfully, is a small but tangible step in a direction. It's, it's heading somewhere. It's little things like I happen to know that the CE of NZIA is doing te reo classes with her whānau down in Wellington. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's really beautiful because I think that reo is the gate into fully empathising in a, in a meaningful way with a Māori perspective. The community down in um, Reitahi, the very famous Ratana church, is in a bit of a desperate need at the moment to... Oh, it needs to be looked at. It's kind of it's falling apart in some ways. It's also a bit of a historic kind of monument. Um, we all know it very well. It's had some hilarious additions to it in its um, life, including some random like metal sheets nailed to the side of it. Yeah, it needs a bit of love. And the group that went down to Afi, that community, were a Ngāaho NZIA strong crew. It's not to be ominous or anything, but you know, you wonder. I wonder if there had been change, and maybe there might not have been, but with Aniwaniwa, for example, if a kick-ass stronghold crew of NZIA who had gone down and put their foot down. You know, it's it's not it's not perfect, but um, it's definitely um, a marked kind of response. At the moment, there's a genuine want to, for instance, understand better what's happening out at Ihumatao and to form an opinion and go out and support in whatever way can be done. And that is all because the kawenata exists and they're realising that in order to honour honor that relationship, both sides, but particularly from the NZIA side because it's the most unknown, from the NZIA coming into Te Ao Māori, what is it we have to stand up for? Ihu Matao is a big kind of gnarly thing to, to try and deal with. But, you know, Matua Hare got up at the recent event they had out there, he's just been given the New Zealand Order of Merit and he said if the government don't do anything about Ihu Matau, he's going to give it back. You know, if a man like that, if somebody like that can make a statement that powerful, we can too. So it's those sorts of things that make me go, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky, we are so lucky that we're living in a time that a relationship like that exists and we can go look. We need to sit down and have a serious conversation about this and everybody shows up. I really liked those examples because it shows that even at this early stage in the process, this relationship just has so much potential. Yeah, it could go anywhere. <laughs> we could do a lot together. Yeah. I'm just going to ask one more question mm. and it's the co-pop of the podcast is Indigenous Urbanism. Yeah. As I've been going through this series, I've been looking at it, I guess trying to push the boundaries of what that definition could mean. Mm. So not just thinking about cities, but anywhere where we have settlements in a relationship with our physical environment. So I guess I just wanted to invite you if you have any thoughts on that theme or, or you know things you want to talk about. I, I love it, actually. I love indigenous urbanism as an idea, as a thematic idea, as a notion. The idea that indigenous people are somehow rural uh, is inherently incorrect, particularly because we know the world over that, for the most part, you know, and I'm just kind of finger in the air here, but 
Our cities built where they were built because there were probably settlements there from the indigenous people anyway um, because it was good for food and for foraging and for travelling up and down waterways and for probably good points of view from a, maybe for war or whatever. They already had settlements in them. You know, um, we know that for Tamaki. Tamaki was massively fought over and for a damn good reason. Our soils are fertile. We've got two harbors, well, four harbors really, but you know, we've got water. Uh, so the notion that there are not indigenous people in cities and urban spaces is fundamentally incorrect, which we know. So that's preaching to the choir. I'm gonna say this because I really wanted to say this at a panel. Black Panther made me so excited because, <laughs> and lots of people actually, lots of us were talking about it and I think there's a lot to be unpacked in it. Uh, the notion of Wakanda, right? The notion of like a, a city that was not affected by the white man in Africa, that was able to grow and become this kind of like dense, intensified, urbanized city that was 100% African, like looking, whatever that looks like, you know? And I, I know that Africa is a continent and not a, and not a country, I'm not stupid, but, you know, the notion of that, that's amazing. I, I think Black Panther was so successful for so many reasons, but from an architectural point of view, I looked at that and I was like, oh my God, yay. Could you imagine Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch has, has made some genuine efforts, but starting to really embody the notion of the treaty as being reflected in our cities, that is such an exciting prospect. From a... Um, from a not like talking about an Auckland-centric point of view, you know, because um, Aucklanders are good at that. But um, I just think that the Te Ao Māori point of view, genuinely, has a lot to offer um, our built environment spaces. We thought about things sustainably, sustainably. We moved around according to the seasons really well. We knew kind of when to plant, what to plant, how to plant. Then we knew how to build, where to build, what we were building in relation to the sun, in relation to the water, in relation to the materials we were using. And we now can evolve all of that thinking to other types of materials, but we can still draw on those really important um, stories, those purako that we've got there, that can continue to influence all of our little pockets of kind of whether it's a whether it's a village, whether it's a community, uh, a township, a city, all of that can infiltrate. I would love Auckland to lead the way because um, because I am ambitious, <laughs> and because why not hit the biggest, hardest, ugliest thing in the room and see what happens. So you know, Auckland needs to do better, and I think we are trying. With the Tiarang Design Principles is a really good example, which I don't need to get into, but the fact that urban decision making, you know, how developments, all those kinds of things happen to go through the urban design panel, which happens to include people who understand Tiaranga design principles, who happen to include Māori designers, you know, all of that sort of stuff hopefully means that maybe in 20 years time our city looks less like another stamped out city, because I remember going to Sydney and thinking, well, this is kind of just a bigger Queen Street. Like downtown Sydney and downtown Auckland have the same ugly vibe, you know, like just a nondescript thing. 
And I remember Matohare saying, you know, like, what is it about Auckland that is Māori? Where are the Māori buildings that aren't relegated to kind of some out-the-back little spot that's hidden by some fences? You know, even Waipapa Marae being probably the most centralised Māori-looking thing is on the actual periphery and down the hill at University of Auckland. It's not in the middle, it's not in a prime location, but it's beautiful. Imagine that affecting other parts of the city. There's a really tall, um, very Chinese looking building in Wellesley Street, I think. And it's cool, it's beautiful. It's, it's you know, it's red, <laughs> stands out. We could do that, we could do that. And I think, you know, the Auckland Art Gallery is obviously a really beautiful expression of architecture and it has Māori touches in it. But we can keep pushing things, we can keep evolving things. I think the notion of what is Māori architecture, what is a Māori city, those are cool questions to ask. I think they just pose more um, possibilities and probably um, kind of endless outcomes that, if anything, it's just like, it's exciting. I think our generation are probably setting up ways to break down the barriers and all the platforms and foundations for that, hopefully so that a generation or two back, they can just start making making the big crazy buildings that do embody that notion of what a Māori city might look like. Indigenous Urbanism is a production of Tamatapihi. Sandy Wakefield does our sound recording, editing and mixing. Our theme was composed by Thomas Burton. I'm Jake Kake, your host and executive producer. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Indigenous Urbanism, go to indigenousurbanism.net. You can drop us a line at info at indigenousurbanism.net. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or rating on iTunes. Coming up next on Indigenous Urbanism, we visit the Vinegar Lane Precinct in inner city Ponsonby and learn about how our bicultural design ethos has been successfully applied to multi-residential housing within a mixed-use development. We've looked back to, uh, to Māori design principles of old, of you know, a vertical papakainga, you know, papakainga where we worked on site, we, we lived, we ate, we, we played, we educated, we trained for war, you know, everything was done within the, in the par. The idea of taking that vertically is really quite exciting for us.